Hey, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and that provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And of course, if you'd like to be rewarded for your time listening to or reading the journal feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Let's take a quick look ahead at everything we'll be covering this week. First, NSAIDs for low back pain, then checking up on the heart pathway. After that, we'll see facial palsy in children with leukemia, then mortality and PNES, and lastly, how to catch the coronavirus. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the exemplary Clay Smith. The first article from this week was titled Non-Steroidal Anti-Inflammatory Drugs for Acute Low Back Pain out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Don't have access to good chairs, never had anyone force you to have good posture, or you just live long enough, then you'll probably have some back pain. 70% of people experience back pain at some point in their lives, and I can only assume that the other 30% just kind of forgot about it. Pain hurts and no one likes it. So to treat this pain, what can we offer besides just the tincture of time? This paper was a review of a Cochrane meta-analysis, which included nine RCTs totaling 2,200 patients. What they found was that compared with placebo, NSAIDs may reduce pain intensity and disability, as well as increasing the proportion of patients who experience a global improvement. Being data lovers, it's all about being number folk. So here's a few numbers needed to treat to wet your chops. The NNT for reducing pain was 14. For reducing disability, it was 12. And for global improvement, the number needed to treat was 13. The NSAIDs used in the trials included many of your favorites, including ibuprofen, paroxicam, dipirone, tenoxicam, and diclofenac. The review authors rated NSAIDs as an intervention for low back pain as yellow, meaning it's of uncertain effectiveness. This is based on the absolute risk reduction being small and the clinical significance being questionable. So in a spoonful, NSAIDs are considered an effective treatment for low back pain, though the absolute reduction in pain and disability isn't very big. Next, the second article was titled, Heart Pathway Implementation Safely Reduces Hospitalizations at One Year in Patients with Acute Chest Pain, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. As you may recall, the patients of the original Heart Pathway RCT, which was using a heart score and then troponins at zero and three hours for risk stratifying patients, were doing quite well at one year out. But how about if we try that approach in a real-life model with a larger population? This study was a planned analysis of one-year follow-up after use of the heart pathway by integration into these sites' electronic medical records. This was used on about 8,500 patients over the age of 21, with possible ACS but no STEMI on ECG, out of three emergency departments. About half of the cohort was added before the heart pathway was added to the EHR, and the other half afterwards. A year later, we see that the heart score identified 30.7% of chest pain patients as low risk, and 97.5% of those identified as low risk did not have an MI or death. In other words, the negative predictive value was 97.5%. And after implementing this tool, admissions for chest pain dropped by 7%, from 69% down to 62%. The composite outcome of MI and death occurrence was not significantly different before or after the implementation of the heart score, though. 
Worth mentioning is that 11.6% of patients were lost to follow-up post-implementation of the heart pathway, which could make a big difference. But the loss to follow-up rate was similar in those who were entered before the implementation of the pathway. And sensitivity analysis showed that outcome rates were no different no matter how the missing data was handled. So, in a spoonful, the heart pathway, when incorporated into the electronic health record, reduced admission and downstream testing for chest pain, and was associated with low adverse events at one year. Next, the third article titled The Risk of Leukemia in Children with Peripheral Facial Palsy out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Luckily, children very seldomly have strokes, so most of the time in a child with a droopy face, they have idiopathic facial nerve palsy. Of course, there are a few other things that can cause it, things like complicated otitis media, Lyme disease, herpes, and others. But perhaps I'm going to be able to add one more condition to your list of diagnoses to watch out for, and one that you wouldn't want to miss, so it deserves a place in your differential. During an international trial of steroids for Bell's palsy, five cases of leukemia were identified, four of which were new diagnoses, and one was a recurrence in the CNS. That would work out to 0.6% of the total of 644 children who presented to the emergency department with facial nerve palsy. This is a little bit surprising to me, since it's already well-recognized and of course makes a lot of sense that a solid tumor might cause a cranial nerve palsy, but a hematological malignancy doing it is kind of news to me. The authors of this paper recommend getting a CBC for children presenting with facial nerve palsy of unknown cause, especially if you're considering giving steroids, since this might complicate receiving a diagnosis of leukemia later on, and it may affect treatment options as well. So in a spoonful, in a small subset of children, facial nerve palsy may be caused by leukemia. And so if you're going to start steroids, consider getting a CBC first. Next, number four, titled The Mortality in Patients with Psychogenic Non-Epileptic Seizures out of the Journal of Neurology. BNES is more than just an unfortunate acronym that forces you to spell it out and dare not try to pronounce it. These patients are liable to present in all kinds of creative and interesting ways. But despite being classified as psychogenic, it's not always just a marker of benign disease. 49 to 100% of those affected have an underlying psychiatric illness, and 5 to 20% have comorbid epilepsy. So how else can this be affecting our patients? This study was a retrospective study of 674 patients with a diagnosis of PNES over a 20-year period. The mortality rate of these patients was 8.2%. That gives a standard mortality ratio of 2.5, meaning that the observed mortality was two and a half times higher than that expected of the general population based on age, gender, and the year. And so that you have an idea of severity, that amount of increase in mortality is comparable to the mortality of patients with drug-resistant epilepsy. If these patients had both PNES and epilepsy, then the standard mortality ratio actually bumps up to 3.7. So how were these patients dying? 16.4% died of suicide or accidental drug overdose. 24% just had epilepsy down as the cause, which isn't very descriptive really. And 18.2% died of external causes. And if you isolate those younger than 50 years old, then you see that the proportion dying to suicide or overdose increased at 20%. So in PNES, whatever is causing their motor symptoms, be them feigned or voluntary, it doesn't really matter in the face of these patients facing a real increase in mortality. 
So regardless of the root cause, there's often an underlying psychopathology that affects many of these patients, and honestly, more often than not, and this is real and this needs to be treated. In a spoonful, patients with psychogenic non-epileptic seizures had a 2.5 times greater mortality than the general population, many of them dying by suicide. All right, lastly, the fifth article, titled Contact Settings and Risk of Transmission in 3,410 Close Contacts of Patients with COVID-19 in Guangzhou, China, a prospective cohort study out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Masks for all you're asking, or perhaps it's not you asking, but everybody is wondering what's useful and what's not when it comes to reducing the spread of coronavirus. Honestly, I think that the key to understanding this is really going to revolve around the secondary attack rate. This is the measure of how likely it is for a susceptible individual to become infected after they are exposed. So COVID-19 certainly hasn't been a joke, but that doesn't mean that it could not have been a lot worse either. The secondary attack rate for something like measles, for example, is 90%, which is massive. But measles is a true airborne virus, while coronavirus isn't, not really. It seems to spread by respiratory droplets larger than 5 microns, but perhaps sometimes by smaller droplets, and then of course we're still being very careful about things like aerosols. So the big question is, will you catch it? This was a prospective cohort study of patients in China based on contact tracing of 3,410 patients who were exposed to 391 COVID-19 infected individuals. From those 3,400-odd people exposed, 127 developed an infection. So here's how that exposure sort of broke down. Overall, the secondary attack rate was 3.7%. Within a household, that secondary attack rate rose to 10.2%. Within the healthcare setting, it dropped to 1%. And thankfully, it drops even farther on public transit in a population where wearing masks was mandatory to a secondary attack rate of 0.1%. On top of that, the chance of infection increased based on the severity of illness of the index patient. So for asymptomatic index cases, the secondary attack rate was 0.3%. Contrary to those who had severe illness, where that increased up to 6.2%. So that person sitting next to you calmly on the bus probably doesn't need to be treated like a leper from times of old. But just like before the pandemic, you should continue to avoid anyone who seems to be trying desperately to cough up a lung, as though being rid of it would help them breathe any better. All right, so in a spoonful, if a susceptible person is exposed to someone with COVID-19, on average, there is about a 3-4% to 4 chance of becoming infected. But many things would make that more or less likely. So let's do our quick roundup for the day. What did we learn? First, if you have back pain, reach for NSAIDs. They might not help much, but they'll probably help a little. Next, the heart score performs well yet again, this time in a larger, more real-life sample where it was built into the electronic health record of three hospitals, leading to decreased admission rates and testing. Next, before starting steroids in children with facial nerve palsies, consider getting a CBC just in case, for some unlucky few, that their nerve palsy is caused by leukemia. Next, it's almost never clear what causes or is going on with patients with PNES, but with an increase of mortality of 2.5 times over the general population, it can't be ignored. And lastly, overall, if that coughing person you were just with actually did have COVID-19, then the odds of you getting it are somewhere between 3 and 4%. The riskiest thing you can do is live with someone who has it, 
but a quick bus ride seems to be pretty safe. So that's it for this week, and that is all. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.